Hey everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow. Tonight on The Readout. So, look, all I want to do is this. I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes, which is one more that we have, because we won the state. Turns out that wasn't the only call Trump made to try to overturn his Georgia defeat. And with criminal charges possibly coming soon in Georgia and New York, we need to talk about why the Justice Department is taking a back seat to those investigations. Plus, newly released January 6th video clearly refutes Tucker Carlson's phony narrative about the supposedly peaceful tourists. January 6th committee member Adam Schiff joins me. I'll also be joined by the journalist who was fired after privately calling out the DeSantis administration for propaganda. And wait till you hear the scathing response from Princess Diana's brother after Donald Trump claimed that she and the other royals used to kiss his big old bum. But we begin the readout tonight with what is considered the most difficult element to prove in a criminal case, intent proving someone acted intentionally to commit a crime. For Donald Trump, that is what state prosecutors and special counsel Jack Smith need to show if they ultimately choose to indict the former president. Luckily for them, Trump has left a clear trail of breadcrumbs to help them in their efforts. In the Fulton County special grand jury investigation, we're learning of a third call that Trump personally made in his attempts to pressure Georgia officials to flip their state's results from Biden to Trump. NBC News has confirmed that the grand jury heard a recording of a phone call between Trump and Georgia House Speaker David Ralston, who died in November, in which Trump urged his fellow Republican to convene a special session of the state legislature to overturn the Georgia results. That news was first reported by the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, whose reporters spoke to five grand jury members. One of them told the paper that the speaker basically cut the president off. He said, I will do everything in my power that I think is appropriate. He just basically took the wind out of the sails. This latest revelation comes as we already know about two other calls Trump made as part of his pressure campaign. One to Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, where Trump made this request. So, look, all I want to do is this. I just want to find uh, 11,000 780 votes, which is one more that we have, because we won the state. And the other to a top investigator in the Georgia Secretary of State's office, urging her to find dishonesty to overturn the results, making this claim. What Georgia, I know that by a lot, and the people know it. And, uh, you know, something happened there. I mean, something bad happened. Hopefully, uh, you know, I will... And while those five jurors would not disclose the details of their deliberations and have no knowledge about what Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis will ultimately do in response to their recommendations, 
One juror told AJC, quote, I tell my wife if every person in America knew every single word of information we knew, the country would not be as divided as it is right now. Hmm. And another added, a lot's going to come out sooner or later, and it's going to be massive. It's going to be massive. We're expecting an announcement from Willis any day now. At the end of January, she said that her decision on whether to bring charges was, quote, imminent. This comes as we also wait to hear from Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg about potential charges in his criminal investigation into Trump's hush money payment to porn actress Stormy Daniels. Now, when it comes to proving Trump's intent in that case, that grand jury spent more than five hours hearing from the man who orchestrated the payment on Trump's behalf, his former personal attorney, Michael Cohen. And last night, Cohen told me that he came to court armed with receipts. My understanding of that would be for you to provide not just testimony, not just corroboratable testimony, but also documents. Would that be accurate? Yeah, of course. When you start bringing documents and emails and text messages and other documentary evidence to the table, it's impossible for that statement um, not to be valid um, or validated. Now, let's not forget that Cohen literally went to prison in part for the same thing that Trump is being accused of. And while it appears that D.A. Bragg could be first in line to bring charges against Trump, let's just be clear. There are more than a few people in America, safe to say, who are wondering if this New York case is the best case to be brought first, setting the tone for all the others. New York Times columnist Charles Blow pushes back on that thinking, writing, quote, any case against Trump must hang on the evidence and the principle that justice is blind. The political considerations, including gaming out what might be the ideal sequence of cases across jurisdictions and by their gravity, only serve to distort the judicial process. And to Trump's countless claims that any indictment of him will put this country through chaos, Blow adds, that's not a reason to avoid vigorously and swiftly pursuing him legally but rather a reason to do it. If we establish a precedent that amassing a significant threat to society is a ward against enforcement of the law, it makes a mockery of the law. But the question remains, why are two states on the hook to do a job that the Justice Department arguably should be doing themselves? Why are they being left to hold the bag to go first and carry these questions into history when President Biden literally gave Attorney General Merrick Garland that job? Joining me now is Charles Blow, New York Times columnist and MSNBC political analyst, and Ellie Mastal, justice correspondent for The Nation. And it's your column, Charles. I'm going to let you go first, because I have heard this a lot from family and friends and from others who have said, it makes no sense to me that the case that goes first and the case that may be the one that Trump actually finally gets indicted for, maybe even the only one it gets indicted for, is the porn actress payment. But you've said, doesn't matter. I don't think it matters as much. I, you know, I, I think you make a raise an interesting point. If the federal government and Merrick Garland were asking the states to hold off or to order their cases, that would be one thing. But to expect uh, district attorneys and prosecutors across jurisdiction in different states elected by different sets of citizens to then backseat back, back their case because they want to let another case go ahead is also just playing around with the judicial system. If you have the evidence, if you have if, if a grand jury uh, has, or a special grand jury in the case of Georgia has suggested that you, that you should should charge uh, or indict uh, and you have, feel like you have the evidence to do that, you should do that in a timely manner. It is both fair 
to uh, the American people, but also fair to the defendant who is Donald Trump uh, to, to go ahead and proceed with it uh, forthrightly. What I think that the danger here is that we are showing Americans that people who are powerful and wealthy do not have to play by the same rules if we do not go ahead with it, with with swiftly uh, and, and uh, uh, comprehensively prosecuting someone who we know has evidence against them that suggests that they have committed a crime. If you were poor and if you were powerless, the system would waste no time whatsoever to throw the book at you. And they may not even know that they're going to win the case in the end. And that would not be a consideration that they would take in, uh, into account. And I think that what the danger here is that we underscore the flimsiness of the idea of equal justice under the law if we continue to let Trump flout it. I mean, and I, I think you cannot argue against that, uh, Ellie, but right? And I guess the thing that, that troubles the folks who tell me this, and, and I, I have to confess I might be in that camp a little bit myself, is that the gravity of the things that Trump did you know, first of all, Michael Cohen went to jail for something. He, he didn't have a fair with Stormy Daniels. He served time in prison for it. So it's logical to say that Trump ought to be prosecuted for that crime. Full stop. But at the same time, there's something that bothers me about the Justice Department hanging back and being like, go ahead, Georgia, New York. Y'all take care of this. Because they've got I mean, they're, they're still questioning his lawyers right now. They seem to be still working their their work. But why should the states have to carry the ball? Yeah, it's people are being forced to carry the ball because the Justice Department is cowards. All right. I agree with Charles Blow because I'm not an idiot. Of course, I agree with Charles Blow. You should prosecute the case. You should always have them in a timely manner. But the timely manner was a year ago because, (laughs) folks, and I I, have tried to make this point as, as clearly as I can. But time's arrow goes forward. And there is a timeline here that circumscribes what you can do to Trump. And that timeline is the 2024 election cycle. We're talking right now about the cases in Georgia. Let's say Fannie Willis decides that she's going to indict. So now she brings up another grand jury to do that indictment. That pushes us most likely until around May. Folks, the 2024 Republican primary in Georgia is on March 26, 2024. You cannot spool up a trial against a former water salesman and president of the United States, Donald Trump, in the time available between now and the Georgia primaries or between now and the New Hampshire primaries in February. So as this timeline gets elongated, what we're then left with is the possibility of trying to try a former president of the United States during an election cycle where he is running, most likely being the leading vote getter for his party. I would be willing to do that, but I've seen nothing from the Justice Department that tells me that they have the kind of uh, courage to do that. And then even when you get at these state cases, I believe in Fannie Willis. I believe that she is a dedicated public servant. But even Fannie Willis has admitted that she understands political realities. Remember, it was Fannie Willis who said they weren't going to do anything in terms of announcing anything about Trump in the lead up to the uh, midterm elections. That was, I think, the appropriate call. I think it would probably be very difficult to seat a jury about election fraud during the presidential election when one of those guys is running. Like, do Trump people get to sit on that jury? Do Biden (laughs) voters get to sit on that jury? Like, how do you even do it? So the timeline, the timeline to hold this man accountable before he was allowed to try to take over the government again happened in the past. 
And that's because yeah. Merrick Garland did not move fast enough and, and courageously enough to bring this man to heel when he had the opportunity. What we're looking at right now is just it's just very difficult to see how we go from where we are now on March on the Ides of March. Right. <laughs> to a conviction and jail before this man can run for president again. You know, it's funny, Charles. I feel like Trump in, in some ways has had the greatest luck in the world that he ran for president and the worst luck, right? Had he not run for president, he could have paid Stormy Daniels all the money he wanted, you know, for whatever reason. It wouldn't matter. It wouldn't be connected in any way to him trying to save his campaign. But in this case, he got the benefit of SDNY not prosecuting him for what they prosecuted Michael Cohen for. He had his Justice Department throw Cohen back in jail because he wrote a book. Like, he had all of those benefits and power. And, and he still in a sense, is poised to maybe get away with it all or have the public say, oh, you guys got to be kidding. You're prosecuting him for a sex thing. You know what I mean? Or doubt. And, and then the last thing I will say to throw into you, Charles, the federal government is the one with all of the, 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 the protection. Bonnie Willis is going to absorb the incredible risk if she prosecutes Trump. And she doesn't have the resources of protection that a Merrick Garland would at the federal level. Same thing with Alvin Bragg. I again, the states are taking risks that it blows my mind that it seems the federal government is so reluctant to take. Yeah, but, but I would say Alvin Bragg is in New York City, which has a police department the size of a, a country, a small country's military. <laughs> so I think that he would be perfectly fine seeking protection from the New York City PD. Uh, but but I, I take your point, though, and it is important to remember that that the, the entire system is failing yes. because it is never anticipated a Donald Trump. And so every one of the rules is one that he can exploit. Yes. The timelines make no sense because he understands that he has the power of delay. He has enough money, money to do it. He can constantly file challenges to things. He can constantly file appeals all the way up until something is uh, goes to trial, if it ever does go to trial. He understands that. And what we're doing is sitting back, hoping and praying that our old antiquated system of rules, not even laws, are going to help us or save us. And they won't. We, yeah. we no one prosecuted him for four years when he was in office because we had this silly rule in the, in the DOJ that says you can't do it. Why is the sitting president? Well, the sitting president is the one who committed the crimes. If that's what the evidence says, he has to be prosecuted. But they didn't want to do that. And now you get him out of office. Well, he says, well, I'll run again. Now we put you I put you back on the same clock and you have the same problem again. We have to just say the clocks don't work. Throw the clocks out. Let's just deal with the evidence we have. If there's evidence to prosecute this man, you have to do it whenever it's happening. If he, when he's running, when he's elected again, whenever it's happening, he has to do it. Because as soon as he get back, gets back into office, if that ever happens and gets his hands back on the Department of Justice, all of that is out the window. Yeah. And the only thing that wouldn't be out the window, we are out of time, is that he couldn't pardon himself from the state cases. That's the, the one benefit of these two states potentially being the ones to prosecute because he couldn't. There's nothing he could do about it. Um, it's, it's, it's a conundrum, but it definitely feels like he's I mean, look, he's been committing crimes. He, I don't think the man has paid taxes since he was on The Apprentice when he worked for the same company I worked for and got a W-2. That's the only time he's paid taxes, apparently. We got away with that, too. Charles Blow, Ellie Mustafa, thank you both very much. Up next on The Readout, gripping new footage from inside the Capitol on January 6th shows the bravery and heroism of the police officers who defended the building and the occupants from Trump's violent mob. Congressman Adam Schiff joins me next.
Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. It's been more than two years since a mob of Trump supporters stormed the Capitol. To date, the Department of Justice has arrested more than a thousand Trump supporters, with more than half of them pleading guilty for their crimes. The former president, who lost to President Biden, continues to falsely claim that he actually won the election. And now he blames his former vice president for the events of that day, because Mike Pence dared to follow the law. Still, the FBI has arrested just a small fraction of the more than 3,000 people who could be charged. More than 1,000 additional people could still face charges, and at least 250 suspects are still wanted by the Bureau for assaulting officers. Despite what we saw— Tucker Carlson, Tucker Swanson Carlson, to be exact, released cherry-picked video to rewrite the truth and claimed that what we saw was in fact peaceful and the people who stormed the Capitol were sightseers, not insurrectionists. As for the QAnon shaman guy, Jacob Chansley, who Tucker went to great lengths to defend as a police-escorted visitor, well, on Sunday, the DOJ said that, what, that Tucker omitted what he really did which includes this lovely video of Chansley and others forcibly entering the Capitol. Ah, peaceful tourism. This week, we got even more video from the DOJ, which shows us how those meek sightseers came within feet of Iowa Senator Chuck Grassley, who, as Senate President Pro Tem, was third in line for the presidency. Here he is, behind the officers, surrounded by a security detail, trying to escape the sightseers, who came ready to murder Mike Pence and were within feet of assaulting Grassley. Tucker Carlson tells us we should not believe those images, but every single day, the Department of Justice arrests a new insurrectionist and releases a cache of footage that reminds us that this wasn't some benign tour of the Capitol, but rather exactly what we watched live, a violent siege on our democracy. We are not losing the U.S. Capitol today. Do you hear me? We are not losing the U.S. Capitol. Joining me now is Congressman Adam Schiff of California, a former member of the January 6th Select Committee. He's also a candidate for U.S. Senate in California. Congressman Schiff, I, I m must get your reaction to the fact that uh, despite Tucker Carlson clearly lying about that footage and distorting it, and distorting specifically the Jacob Chansley crimes, which he, he was, he's guilty of and he's serving time for, Kevin McCarthy's still defending giving him the footage. Your thoughts? Well, this is part of McCarthy's deal to get the speakership, which is to give this video footage 
uh, to this propagandist on Fox. Uh, and it just shows how the speaker is willing to sacrifice not just the truth, but the security of the very institution of which he is now the speaker uh, in order to curry favor to the most uh, extreme or from the most extreme members of his conference. But, uh, but it's so important to continue showing this footage because Tucker Carlson uses that megaphone to lie and lie and lie to the American people. And as we've seen in the Dominion voting litigation, emails and texts from Tucker Carlson, he knows he's pushing a big lie. Uh, he shows his private disdain for Donald Trump and for the absurdity of these claims of fraud around the election. Uh, and yet he makes very clear, as does Rupert Murdoch and others, when it comes to Fox, it's just about the money. And when it comes to Kevin McCarthy, it's just about holding on to the title of speaker uh, and uh, the country be damned. Well, I mean, right. Of course, Tucker Carlson texted that he hates Trump passionately, passionately. Um, and to your point, there was a deal that was cut for Kevin McCarthy, even though it still took him 15 votes. He made a promise to Marjorie Taylor Greene, allegedly, to investigate Speaker Pelosi and the Department of Justice um, to release this 40,000 hours of footage to Tucker Carlson and to authorize a subcommittee to investigating the events surrounding the Capitol breach and and also they're talking about the people who were arrested, many of whom assaulted police officers um, and beat them with their own shields and tased them. They're calling them political prisoners. And some of those people who are behind bars are now using Tucker Carlson's edited footage to say, wow, we're going to get off because Tucker's helping us. This feels like quite a bit of collusion between some members um, of, of the House of Representatives, Tucker Carlson, and the people who engaged in the—just your thoughts on all of that. Well, you know, it is uh, just another page out of the Trumpist playbook, and that is when you're caught in serious wrongdoing, uh, then you investigate the investigators. You try to discredit uh, what you were involved in and the investigation of that by investigating the investigators. Uh, here, they've gone to the extraordinary length of trying to persuade the country not to believe their own eyes, not to believe this footage, not to believe hundreds of police officers that were injured that day. Uh, and to make heroes out of these violent hooligans, uh, to, to somehow claim they're political prisoners, to champion them. Uh, you've got the former president uh, reportedly doing a, a music video with some of them. I mean, it is just absurd. But if we ever needed a modern education in the power of the big lie, that is a lie repeated over and over again, we see it today in the fact they have succeeded in persuading tens of millions of Americans that they can't believe their own eyes, they can't believe what they see. No, they've got to believe this propaganda. And it just couldn't be more dangerous if, uh, if Americans can't agree on a common set of facts, then what basis do we have to make decisions about policy and how we move the country forward? You have people like Barry Loudermilk, who led a tour um, of Capitol insurrectionists and who is now heading an investigation into the investigation. Given the fact that uh, people like uh, Jim Jordan laughed off subpoenas from the committee that you were a part of, if you're subpoenaed, would you respond to that subpoena by doing the same and saying, fighting it or saying, I don't have to listen to you, the subpoenas from Republicans? I would respond to a legitimate subpoena. I don't know if I'll get a legitimate subpoena from that crowd. Uh, and yes, you're right. Uh, I think anyone who gets one certainly could use the defense. I'm just not going to bother to show up because these are clearly optional. That's what uh, Jim Jordan did. Uh, but, but nonetheless, I think members of Congress, members of the administration should comply, comply with legitimate oversight. The question is, are we going to see anything that even resembles legitimate oversight? Or are we going to see 
you know, more of this kind of gaslighting uh, that we're getting right now from from Jordan, from this select committee on the so-called weaponization of the federal government uh, and the like. Let me ask you this uh, while I have you here. You are running for uh, Senate, for, for uh, Dianne Feinstein's seat in the United States Senate. Are you concerned that this becomes a really sort of internecine food fight between three popular members of the House, maybe even four, um, and that in some way all of you sort of battling for that seat in some way undermines the unity of the caucus? Uh, you know, I, I am concerned about it. I don't want to see that happening. Uh, I, I'm keeping my message very positive. Uh, frankly, I've got enough on my hands responding to the attacks I'm getting from Kevin McCarthy, Donald Trump, and others who are out there saying Adam Schiff should not be in the U.S. Senate. Uh, so I'm directing my fire uh, on the other side because that's where the danger to our democracy lies. And that's where the challenge is to our country in, in creating an economy that works for everyone. I would hope the other candidates do the same. We're all rivals under the same flag. Uh, and we've got more on our hands uh, than fighting with each other. All right. Well, we will definitely be watching. Should be an exciting race. Congressman Adam Schiff, thank you very much. Much appreciated. Still ahead, uh, Republicans sure do love their freedoms, like freedom from disturbing facts about American history, modernity, and losing elections. More on that next. It's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and I'm excited to share some great news. Both The Saturday Show and The Sunday Show are available as a podcast. Every weekend, I look forward to bringing you the most important political news and the newsmakers who are creating policies that affect your life. For me, it's all about the conversation. That's when news is revealed and understanding begins. Search for Saturdays and Sundays with Jonathan Capehart and follow. In his 1941 State of the Union address, President Franklin D. Roosevelt proposed four fundamental freedoms that all people deserve. The first is freedom of speech and expression. Second is freedom of every person to worship God. Third is freedom from want. Fourth is freedom from fear. The Four Freedoms offer a powerful vision for the world, representing, too, what America can be at its best. Well, today's conservatives have their four freedoms, too, representing, as it turns out, America at its worst. Freedoms only for them to enjoy. One of them is freedom from history, meaning the violent, painful, and unsavory parts that make white folks look or feel bad. In Florida, where book banning and, frankly, human life has reached Orwellian levels, the DeSantis administration is now scouring social studies books for prohibited topics. The New York Times reports that at least one publisher, in trying to cater to Florida's draconian guidelines, chose to revise its story on Rosa Parks by omitting references to race. 
Kind of hard to talk about Rosa Parks, who helped launch the civil rights movement without mention of her race, right? Here's the book's original passage on Parks. This is for first graders, by the way, saying, quote, the law said African-Americans had to give up their seats on the bus if a white person wanted to sit down. Okay, that's pretty clear. But then check check out these revisions. One, mentioning race, but indirectly, saying Parks was told to move to a different seat because of the color of her skin. The next revision took race out completely, saying Ms. Parks was, quote, told to move to a different seat. That's it. No mention as to why. No mention of race or segregation the law that resulted in Park's subsequent arrest. It isn't just DeSantis and his minions waging this war against history. According to the New York Times, a conservative group complained to the state that a fifth grade textbook mentioned slavery 189 times. Another objection, an eighth grade book gave outsized attention to the negative side of the treatment of Native Americans, quite the euphemism for genocide. And why not a fuller account of acts of violence by the indigenous, the group complained, such as the Jamestown Massacre of 1622, in which Powhatan warriors killed English colonists. I mean, why wouldn't they just welcome the European invaders taking their land? Like, you know, pretend Thanksgiving. As bizarre as this stuff is, it does help to explain the other freedoms Republicans hold so dear. The freedom from facts, freedom from modernity, and freedom from losing elections. It's why they're hell-bent on erasing the progress of an entire century to take us backward to a world where LGBTQ people cannot live or thrive, and God forbid drag queen story hour, and where, as they would have it, women exist as nothing more than incubators, which is why today, in the year 2023, one male Trump-appointed judge can decide if a common abortion pill will remain on our shelves. Joining me now is Tim Miller, MSNBC political analyst and writer at large for The Bulwark. And Tim, I got to tell you, I I thought about this this morning and I'm like, it is sort of a four freedoms thing, right? Uh, Republicans are trying to live, as Marjorie Taylor Greene very helpfully admitted, they want a safe space where they don't have to think about the modern world and they're using the law to make it happen. As somebody who participated in writing what used to be the old plan— you, you helped write that autopsy that said, no, 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 what we need to do is expand our base. This is their new strategy, brother. What do you make of it? Yeah, listen to FDR right there. It's the, four, the fourth freedom really uh, stands out, right? That freedom from fear. Um, boy, that's not yeah. a freedom that, uh, that Ron DeSantis and this crowd uh, takes into very much consideration. I, in, in fact, they're, they're doing the opposite, right? They're, fear and intimidation is a key part of the plan. I, you know, look at uh, we, at the Bulwark uh, just yesterday. My colleague Jonathan Last wrote about this story. I don't know if you heard this. There's a Christmas drag show at, uh, at the Hyatt in Florida, yeah. uh, in Miami. And Ron DeSantis now is targeting that, that hotel and trying to take away their liquor license as a punishment for hosting this drag story hour. Look at all these drag story hours that are happening all over the country, places where people are being menaced in, in Tennessee and in other states where the Oath Keepers are, are standing outside these events. Part of that is because of the rhetoric that's being pushed forth. So I, you know, I, I think that there's no doubt about this when it comes to that, that type of freedom. And when it comes to the issue of parental rights, that's right. another, you mentioned Orwellian in the intro. That's another one. Whose parental rights? Right. Like uh, our parents don't want our kids to be uncomfortable and have to read about Antango makes three and the gay penguins. But what about the gay parents? What about right. my, what about my rights? Don't I have right to have my That's kid right. be able to feel comfortable talking about her family? So, you know, on a couple of these issues, they, they are there is an Orwellian turn for sure. You know, the thing is, is that it used to be that Republicans would tout a free market capitalism. But you're right. You know, the the, the drag queen, a drag queen Christmas, my brain isn't working with my mouth. Um, it's literally a spinoff of RuPaul's Drag Race. 
Are they going to ban RuPaul's Drag Race from the TV? Because it's just a tour of that show. The kids can watch RuPaul's Drag Race on television, but if they happen to be in the same room with a RuPaul's Drag Race live show, what do they think it's going to do to them? I feel like it is a huge admission of defeat, Tim, that they don't feel they have enough influence over their own kids, that they have to have the state enforce their values because they know young folks don't want their values. Yeah, I think it's a division of mission of defeat in their own home, but also among the culture, right? I, yes. This is why this new, more sort of autocratic strain uh, of nationalism is growing and popular with the Republican Party because they realize they've lost like yeah. the culture, right? And so they cannot win, you know, in, in a in a liberal society, classical liberalism, which used to be a Republican policy, by the way, in a liberal society, <laughs> people should be able to choose what they want. You know, and if, right. and if you want to have a drag queen story hour and you don't you don't want to take your kid there, then great, don't take your kid that's there. Right. But if I want to take my kid, then that's fine. That's how you live in a pluralistic liberal society where we can live together. The Republicans don't like that type of classical liberalism anymore because they realize that, that the culture has moved on. And so now they need these laws to, and, uh, to put bans into place, um, which obviously contradicts, you know, this notion of freedom. And I think libertarianism and freedom are really out of vogue in, in the Republican Party, even if the rhetoric is still in vogue. Well, and right. And the Orwellian piece is that they call it parental rights. And as you made a very good point, I asked a, a, a lovely Republican gentleman who is here, who's not a, a MAGA person. But, you know, what happens if a black parent says, I want my kid to be able to experience the bluest eye? As you said, a, a parent who has a gay child, a gay daughter, I'm like, what if I wanted to read the book? What if it makes her happy and makes her feel included to read this book in school? It, 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 they don't have an answer for that other than, well, then let you read it home. However, they're also saying being in possession of the book is a third degree felony. Is that next? Are they going to start coming after parents who have these books at home? I wish I could say they would never do that. But at this point, I think, you know, anything could happen. Yeah, I don't. I mean, sure, that's a stretch. Maybe it seems like this one, but look at teachers. Let's give an actual tangible example, right? In Florida right now, if a teacher reads a prohibited book, if a teacher right. reads Antango Makes Three, right, and a parent hears about that, they can now there's like this bounty system where they can uh, uh, have the state go after the school. Now, that's a civil penalty, right? It's not a criminal penalty, but that that's a pretty short jump, right? To say that the school could be liable if a teacher was to read one of these prohibited items or hand out an assignment, you know, that, that um, you know, talks about sexuality or gender in a way that that is prohibited. So, I, you know, I, I think that using the state to go after after teachers, I, I, that's something that's already happening. And there's a third degree felony attached to some of these offenses. I mean, the books, the reason some of these librarians are pulling all the books is they're worried about potentially a felony. The other piece of it is going after private businesses. You know, you, you brought up the, the this this private business that decided on its own that said this is a show. No one was forced to go to the show. But what do you do you think at some point business tends to tilt toward Republicans? At some point, do they go, whoa, you're going after Disney, you're going after this Hyatt? Y'all are not for business being able to live uh, free in this country. You want business to comply. I, I do think so. And you're seeing that, right, among some of the turn towards Democrats, among college-educated kind of Republican business types, not maybe as many as I would have thought or hoped, but you're seeing some movement towards Democrats. The Disney thing is a prime example. Like, I went to see DeSantis uh, last week for when I was uh, guest hosting on the circus in Florida, and he talks about how he was going after Disney. He says this explicitly because they're sexualizing our children. He used that word right. multiple times, sexualizing our children. I'm like, what exactly is he talking about? Because I remember when this happened, and it's, it's that, that it was the Buzz Lightyear kiss. 
It was like a very, you know, very G-rated kiss between two women in a Buzz Lightyear movie. That's sexualizing our children? I was like, what about the princess and the frog? You know, what, what about Snow White? I, you know, like, what, what, what are you talking about? But, but so if a business feels that threat, we're like, oh, man, I can't even have a G-rated uh, lesbian kiss, you know, in my product, or, I, or the state might come after me. I do think that, though, that will impact their, their, uh, their thinking. And what they don't understand is business aren't doing this because they're nice. They're doing it because they want to make money and they know that there's a pluralistic society and the audience wants them to do things that keep everyone involved. And they want every kid to have a, a toy they can doll, a doll they can relate to and buy and purchase. It's because it's good business. Anyway, uh, Tim Miller, thank you. I appreciate you. Thank you very much. Up next, an Axios reporter is fired over his seven word response to a DeSantis press release, raising questions about the lengths to which DeSantis will go to muzzle free speech. Former Axios reporter Ben Montgomery joins me next. Does it say that in the bill? Does it say that in the bill? I'm asking you to tell me what's in the bill because you are pushing false narratives. It doesn't matter what critics say. A lot of demand. I mean, I think at the end of the day, excuse me, excuse me. If I could finish my question. You just said what has gone wrong, so I'm answering the question. If I could complete the question, though. So are you going to give a speech or are you going to answer, ask a question? With all due respect, Governor, You asked the question, I'm I'm going to answer it. Wow. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has made no secret of his disdain for the media. He's obviously chosen to replicate Donald Trump's approach of attacking anyone who dares to ask a question that's not a softball. But when you have a political, when you have a potential presidential candidate who seems to only want to troll the press, it makes it very difficult for journalists to do their jobs. This week, for example, the DeSantis team released a quote-unquote press release about the Florida governor's roundtable on, and I am quoting, exposing the diversity, equity, and inclusion scam in higher education, unquote which is basically just a summary of a meeting between DeSantis and other conservatives filled with quotes about the evils of DEI and CRT. It reads in part, quote, these concepts are in no way inclusive and instead force exclusion and division within higher education and do not in any way contribute to learning or knowledge, unquote. Now, for anyone who's never worked in politics or communications, that, that is not what a press release is. A press release usually notifies news media about an event that they can attend or includes an announcement or official statement, not an essay on why they hate CRT something Tampa-based Axios reporter Ben Montgomery called them out for. Replying back, this is propaganda, not a press release. In response, the Florida Education Department's communication director tweeted out a screenshot of that reply, leaving him to the wolves and trolls of Elon's right-wing Twitter, and that ultimately led to Axios firing Montgomery. That kind of move from Team DeSantis sends a clear and chilling message to any reporters who might be covering his potential campaign. Give him positive coverage, or else. And if journalists are getting fired for calling them out, it definitely sends a message that DeSantis can get away with it. Joining me now is Ben Montgomery, reporter and author of A Shot in the Moonlight. Thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate you responding to our request. And I, I will note before I talk to you that we did reach out uh, to Axios. Um, we asked for a statement. We also invited them to come on and participate in this and respond. Um, we did not hear back. So let me just ask you, when you started getting trolled on Twitter after the person from DeSantis's team screenshotted your email and posted it, did you hear from your bosses at Axios that that was a problem, that you were now being basically outed for your email? It took a little while. Um, I think it was uh, quite a few hours later that that email was posted uh, mid-afternoon, and I got a call late Monday evening. Um, 
I thought for sure it would just blow over. I've seen this happen to a number of my colleagues in Florida. It seems like it happens every time somebody challenges, uh, you know, the, 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 the whatever information might be um, uh, being put out by the governor or in this case, the Department of Education, which has sort of become a politicized uh, branch of uh, the DeSantis administration and kind of now the DeSantis campaign. So we have the Florida Department of Education that's kind of engaged in, in my view, uh, campaigning for uh, DeSantis for 2024 presidential campaign. Um, so uh, what they're doing is is weaponizing these uh, these um, sort of emails that, that we sometimes send um, and trying to make us look like lefty activists when really uh, we're just interested in um, you know, and them serving the people and being true public servants uh, and doing uh, doing the right kind of work, uh, you know, that, that the taxpayers are paying them for. There, there is a bullying aspect of and a lot of trolling. They do a lot of, of Twitter trolling. Uh, they tried to bully uh, my, my my dear friend and colleague, Andrea Mitchell, for asking a question, not even to DeSantis, so, to, the, to, the, to the vice president, Kamala Harris. Did you experience before this any kind of bullying behavior from the DeSantis camp? Look, I mostly write about uh, fluffy kind of things. I mean, I cover the news, of course, and I've been an investigative yeah. reporter for a long time, but not with this, not with this administration. Uh, by and large, uh, I have not had the opportunity to really do any kind of depth, uh, in-depth reporting sure. on the DeSantis administration. I'm not a person that they would uh, that they should be afraid of. I don't think. Um, right. I'm not writing <laughs> about them every day. Uh, I'm not digging yeah. deep. In other words. Um, so, uh, yeah, but, but this was propaganda and it was a waste of my time. And that's ultimately like what I was saying to them, this, this wastes my time and, and it's done, uh, it, it, you know, in the clear vein of propaganda, this is objectionably propaganda. And I read the whole thing because I give them the benefit of the doubt because they work for the people of Florida and I yeah. want to, I want to do right by my readers. And so sure. when this wastes my time, it's just propaganda. I feel like I have the right to say so. And, yeah. uh, and and I feel like what Axios did to me has a chilling effect on the entire news media. It's a very sad thing. Oh, it 100 percent does. It does show that that bullying works. And then that sends a message to every other journalist. You put up a pretty uh, sort of fun tweet uh, after this all happened, uh, saying that you'd made a quiche. What is your next what are your next plans? I um, I was talking to my agent today about whether there was a book in this. And, um, you know, maybe there is. Uh, maybe it's time that somebody. Um, isn't afraid to stand up to DeSantis and write a true uh, biography of him. Um, so I might be the guy to do that. We'll see. Yeah, but yeah good luck. Uh, he doesn't talk about, he's got his military records. People have lots and lots of questions. Let's see. And maybe you can pull it off. Ben Montgomery, th thank you, man. Really appreciate you being here and best of luck in whatever you do next. And up next, Trump's totally creepy obsession with the late Princess Diana earns him a blistering rebuke from Diana's brother. I'll spill the English tea next. Donald Trump has always had an obsession with royalty. Remember when he brought his entire family to Buckingham Palace with him to try to schmooze with the Windsors? Combine that with his overinflated sense of self and grotesque behavior towards women, and you can understand how he could convince himself that he could have dated the late Princess Diana back in the 90s. His pursuit of the royals actually began in the 80s when he entirely made up a story about Prince Charles and Diana planning to buy a Trump Tower condo. He then claimed in 1994 that Charles and Diana had sent him $50,000 checks to join Mar-a-Lago, which the palace called complete nonsense. After the royal divorce, he then attempted to date Diana, sending massive bouquets of flowers. Diana reportedly said Trump gave her the creeps, according to a friend. 
Trump later wrote in his 1997 book that I only have one regret in the women department, that I never had the opportunity to court Lady Spencer. But here's where it gets even more disgusting. Only weeks after her death, he told Howard Stern that he could have, quote, nailed her. He followed up on this three years later while announcing his list of, quote, 10 women he'd like to sleep with, quote unquote, because that's somehow a thing that society decided was OK at the time. Lady Di was truly a woman with great beauty. I've you would have slept with her. A couple of times. Would you have slept with her? Without even hesitation. Right. He wishes he no, had the opportunity. Now, well, there's a truth to that, Robert. She was really beautiful, and people don't realize how beautiful. She was supermodel beautiful. Isn't it amazing? She had the height, she had the beauty, she had the skin, the whole thing. She was I'll crazy, you. but, you know, these are minor details. <laughs> and now he's claiming that Princess Di, along with the Queen and various other celebrities, quote, kissed his arse in letters. Diana's brother, Charles Spencer, didn't take kindly to that, tweeting that the one time she mentioned him to me when he was using her good name to sell some real estate in New York, she clearly viewed him as worse than, and I quote, an anal fisher. I think my job here is done. And that's tonight's readout. Get the latest updates on this year's high-stakes election with MSNBC's How to Win 2024 newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get expert analysis on key races sent straight to your inbox, including articles written by the host of the How to Win podcast, Jennifer Palmieri. Subscribe today at msnbc.com win.